This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days. Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 85 for Friday 15th of March 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening in our country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is Tim Whitehead. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. Uh, Tim is a mediator. We used to work together uh, at a firm of the lawyers. But I thought Tim would be a particularly interesting person to have a chat with this week in a, in a week that has uh, Pell finally being sentenced for his crimes and uh, Tim having experienced uh, somewhat of a, a crisis of faith, would, I, would you say? Well, you... I wouldn't say crisis of faith, and uh, it's utterly coincidental to everything that's happened with Cardinal Pell. But it is the week where I um, decided to announce on Twitter that I've um, made a change to my church-going habits, and and that kind of uh, got a bit more attention than my tweets normally get. In the sense uh, that, that uh, you have, despite being a person who's been very strongly involved in um, in the in the church and not the Catholic Church. No, I don't worry too much about the distinctions, but uh, the church I was going to wasn't a particularly Catholic one. And I was heavily involved, have been for a really long time in a number of churches. But earlier this year, I effectively stopped going. And uh, yeah, this was the week I put that up on Twitter. And it's um, obviously something that a lot of people uh, were quite keen to talk about. So what were you saying? So what was the basis of what what changed, basically? What uh, Obviously something you had a long connection with, and then you sort of decided that it no longer fits. Yeah, that's basically right. My problem was that... I'd noticed over a period of time that the church, uh, and not just this particular one, but there's quite a few of them out there that do this, have this incredible knack of always being on the wrong side of everything. Uh, we're against marriage equality, and we aren't happy with bills that support trans- transgender rights. We you know, fight against every good bit of progress that the country tries to make. Uh, well, they, the two that I th- would have thought even a conservative church might be on board with uh, or what we've changed would be uh, better support for the poor and not torturing refugees on offshore hell camps. Were they? Was your um, denomination neutral on those, in support of the government on those, or it doesn't matter as much as they're fighting the culture war stuff? Yeah, I don't think we're against helping the poor. That That's something the church actually is reasonably good at recognising. I know churches are often quite positive about helping the poor themselves, um, they're often a bit negative about the idea of the government doing it for them, so a solid social safety net. So you don't need to rely on the churches to you know, fill in the gaps. Yeah, I've got to say, I don't think in my time with this particular church that ever came up. It, People living on $40 a day, it, not, a, not a, didn't bother them. It, it, it wasn't something that was on the radar, as far as I know. There might have been people within the church really, really concerned about that and doing good work that I don't know about. Who knows? But it didn't come up on a Sunday morning on any of the times I popped in anyway. And the refugees? Uh, again, it wasn't really something we heard a lot about. Uh, I 
think there was probably within the church quite a range of views on it, but it was never a priority, um, which is probably a bit unfortunate considering that it absolutely should have been. Did you try the change? You know, the, like the the Julian Burns side at the Savage Club. He's like, well, they weren't letting women in, but I tried to change it from within. Well, yes, that was the whole point. I, what what would happen is that you know they'd spend a lot of their time just being nice, normal, decent people, but every now and then someone would get up and say something terrible about safe schools or say that we should all be voting no in the postal survey. Um, and at the time, I would think, well, that's terrible but you know by being part of this organization i can be someone who advocates for the opposite view you know teach some of the younger folk in the church not to grow up to think these things all that sort of thing but the the turning point for me was when i sat down over summer and thought about why these things keep happening um came to the idea really that if you get the entire framework wrong uh then you get to these bad results all the time um Basically, what I mean by that is that there's sort of two types of churches, and this is the type that thinks uh, we're put on earth basically to fight a culture war. Um, so on one side, you have the church and you know the nuclear family and good family values. The moral teachers teachings as laid down in this book that was put together at a certain time, and this is the truth. This is what you're supposed to do, and this is what God wants, and yeah. more important than anything else. Well, the stuff in the book actually isn't too bad, but there's nothing in there about family values. You know, Jesus did not have a wife and kids. Um, he hung out with 12 guys mostly and also many prostitutes and other people who were considered by society to be the worst. Um, I'm but sure you we- can find bits that they do find bits that are specifically in there that they can twist to be like, no, no, um, it, specifically it's bad to do these things because of this interpretation. Oh, there's a bit of that, but there's there's never a really good family value section. I mean, the the person who wrote the most of the New Testament was the Apostle Paul, who said it's a really good idea not to get married. Like, yeah. He wrote that. So, he, he wrote lots of weird, but he he was like a bit of a fundamentalist who went around persecuting Christians, and he's like, oh, I'll switch sides. Yeah, okay. absolutely. But even after switching sides, he's like, no, don't get married. Don't don't have a family. Was basically his advice. So <laughs> yeah, and, his thing gets read at every bloody wedding. That stupid Corinthians thing. Yeah, well, that that was one of the good things he wrote. But how we how we went from that to family values is the main thing is baffling. But we did, or at least this church and many churches do. So it gets to the point where uh, we have this idea that there's a thing called political correctness. Um, it's gone it's, mad, I hear. It has gone mad. Um, but it's actually not just a concept. It's a group of people. We don't know who they are. But they definitely have an agenda. And their agenda is to undermine the family and to undermine you know all the things that really matter in life, like apparently the concept of gender. So, hang on, gender is very important. I I know that the people who are the most fervent defenders of the split binary of genders are definitely not the same people who, if I dress my daughter in blue or my son in pink, or not even just in pink, if if he's wearing flowers, they're like, what a lovely little girl, and if she's in blue, what a lovely little boy. It's like. Gender is a fixed, vital thing that you cannot get past, but it can be completely confused by changing the colour of the clothing. Yeah, there's not a lot of logic there. But once you get to this idea that, okay, it's a culture war, we're on one side, 
political correctness is on the other side. Yeah. With the cultural Marxists fighting against the Judeo-Christians. So I'm just working on my exactly. bullshit two-word things that don't make any sense. The cultural but, Marxists and the Judeo-Christians. Anyway. But this is actual genuine thinking that people do. Um, it's wrong. It's absurd. But it's what they actually think. So I've literally you know, had people say, well, I'm just really concerned because my son is in high school and he's learning about white male privilege and you know this is this is a terrible thing that he's being taught and going well your son has white male privilege what uh, are they afraid of and, him learning and so do i but again if i don't want my a son of mine learning empathy yeah but if your job is to preserve the natural order of things then all these changes that are actually good like you know calling people by their right pronouns um, that's bad because it's undermining the way things are. Not good because you're being nice and showing empathy to another human being. Um, so yeah, I decided that we were so fixed on the culture war, we were just going to keep getting it wrong. My kids were going to grow up and learn that framework and take that into their adult lives. And I don't want that. I endorse your decision. That sounds perfectly <laughs> sensible to me. I'm, I'm surprised because like, you were there for a long time. Like, Yeah, look, this particular church, a couple of years, but churches like this and most of the ones i've been to were a bit like this um yeah about 45 years so it's not to say i'm never going to go to a church again it's just that i think i'm done with any church that has its priorities all askew like that talking of people being on the wrong side of history uh the campaigners for george pell in the media who are look I am glad that people like Bolt are tying themselves to Pell as he sinks. Like that's if if that's what Bolt Bolt wants to do. It's almost one of the the upsides of being of him being such a stubborn bastard. It's like if if that's the thing that he goes down on because it's exactly the it's exactly his personality that's got him where he is. But it's exactly the thing that brings him down. I mean that that would work really nicely. Yeah, it's it's been absolutely flabbergasting. Um, I I'm not you know someone who's not usually cynical i mean i'm generally people think i'm one of the more cynical people they've met but even i have been stunned by this amazing degree to which you know many people in the media including andrew bolt and miranda devine and of course lyle shelton's got in there as well uh, all even after a conviction um still willing to die in a ditch over defending someone who's been you know given the the fairest trial you can get uh as far as i can tell the best defense money can buy uh he's been convicted by a jury and still they're screaming about the presumption of innocence which obviously doesn't apply yeah, so it's really hard to understand why they still won't cut him loose even after that conviction usually at this point you know they will try and protect themselves by saying well no, that person isn't a real christian obviously or, or that person's mm. not who we thought he was mm. but no they, they've stuck by him i i'm baffled they the only thing i can theorize on that is that they genuinely think because it's too much of a jump for them to believe that this man that they really like could have done i mean i don't really get why it's so unbelievable george pill could have done these things but anyway they are they think that he's going to win the appeal. They, they're they rolling the dice and doubling down and being like, because if he does win the appeal, they'll be like, see, he was innocent the whole way along and all you people doubted him and um, and they'll you know, be able to stand up and, and say that we were the true conservatives who stuck by him. And they're gambling on that and they've 
Pell's legal team says, oh, no, it's a strong... Because remember that the Australian was publishing things being like, oh, it's a strong appeal. They've got a, he's got, they've got a strong argument. And it's like from their, their source was their legal affairs editor. Um, the Guardian, or was it Fairfax? One of them spoke to Jeremy Gans at the Melbourne Uni Law School, and he said that look, it's not unusual for these things to be overturned on appeal, um, particularly when it's all based on one witness. But, I mean, if that's the ground, then what are they... I mean, for the court to say you can't, it's not a safe conviction if you've only got one witness of the incident, then they would basically be saying that you can commit any crime you like, just make sure that everybody except one person dies. Yeah, and if you've got enough money and can afford a really good appellate team, uh, you might do well. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's that they're betting everything on the appeal, because that, that seems like a, a bad calculation. But they must um, be, because if he doesn't win the appeal, then they've really screwed themselves. Well, not really, because they've already laid the groundwork for saying, well, if uh, if the appeal doesn't succeed, then, you know, the court system's not working properly. Um, yeah, though, they, they've obviously... Conservatives. The conservative yeah. position of our, our Western institutions that don't work and are terrible. That's yes. conservatism. Well, they, they've already gone there, because trial by jury was a fantastic thing until last week, and, and now it's terrible, and we, we shouldn't have those anymore. I think I prefer uh, Pinafore, they, though. There, there was actually a um, an opinion piece saying, well, it's time to get rid of trial by jury because of what happened to poor Cardinal Pell. I mean, this is not a conservative position. But I think it actually is part of the culture war as well. If, you know, the most senior Catholic in Australia, the revered church leader, can be brought down, um, that's a loss for their side. So the only, only way to rationalise it is the, uh, well, the jury must have got it wrong. It's it's mad, but I I mean you're you're right in the sense I think it's their I think their arrogance and stubbornness are the things that are making and, and because I mean it's one of those times where it's not very well calculated it is just entirely who the people involved actually are like I think that's just their personalities that are forcing them to make this call I don't I don't think they've thought it through strategically no I think that's absolutely right because if you were thinking things through through strategically at most you'd say let's wait for the appeal uh but to go all in on innocence um you're right that has to be either emotionally driven or driven by things other than pure strategy it's yep. got to be you know that you feel you know that a pillar of your world you know a, a foundational thing which is that you know, the Catholic Church is good. Well, that's the case of Miranda. That's Miranda. Bolt is even weirder because he's not actually a Catholic or even Christian. No, he's come out and said he's definitely not a Christian. Um, I try not to point that out too often because it seems rude, but uh, every time I read people saying, oh, no, not Christians like Bolt, (laughs) go, no, he said he's not. Look, everybody, be fair to the Christians. Like, they've already got to deal with Miranda and, you know, having Lyle. Who says that he speaks for them at his lobby? Yes, he, he doesn't. Just just to put that out there. I, I may not be part of a church, but I still want to put that out there. Lyle isn't speaking for me. Or, or whoever the guy... Uh, it's Martin Millis is the guy who's running that, that mob of lunatics now. Yes, but Lyle is still talking. Yes. Oh, well, he, he was up in Townsville. <laughs> Those people haven't suffered enough. Um Yeah, and he has his photograph of the people he's speaking to in the room, but he's got the photograph is of the viewfinder of the camera that's taking it covers like half the room, so it looks like, you know, it covers up how few people are actually there. But when you look into it carefully, it's like (laughs) half a dozen people in the room. It's, you know, well done, Lyle. Um, I like like his slide into even further relevance. Um, It's interesting, though, that people like Lyle are also out there defending Pell because um, 
they agree with him on the culture war stuff. But in their churches, I'm pretty sure that they think that the papists are the tools of Satan and they would be out there. Like, I'm sure they don't like the Catholics. They just like them more than the people who don't believe in, you know, persecuting gay people. Yeah, I think um, they, they found a common cause there and the, the whole Reformation thing is, is in the past now. We, we've put that behind us. and We all hate gays together. Well, yes, but they, they don't think of it that way. They, they, they love these people. They, they want the best for these people. They just think that being gay is a fundamentally bad thing. Again, this is absurd, but you know, they just think if everyone could stop being gay, that would be so much simpler. Yeah, because the 1950s were a golden age and yeah, there were no gay people, so um, that was better. And let's go back to that. I don't endorse this. There is one more thing I want to say. So we, we actually went through Bolt's pathetic defence of uh, Pell in some detail a couple of weeks back because he had like the 10... It was eight or ten. It was the ten points that they were of their appeal, um, and he went through them. And most of them are the same thing. They're they why would he? Why would he do this? I mean, he's a powerful man. Why would he commit a crime that would harm his career? Yes, which which basically means that should just be a full defence. Well, Your Honor, sure, there's footage of me shooting that man, but it would harm my career. Could I have done it? No. Look how wealthy I am. QED. Um, yes. But what I didn't have at that time is this little audio here, but I just, I just want to play this just to remind everybody who, who Pell is in his own words. Now, I might have put the church first rather than the, for a while, rather than the victims, but I'm certainly not here to put myself first. We're not into that. Even if Pell hadn't committed this crime, he's still a terrible person. Anyway, Scummo isn't, sorry, Scummo being the Prime Minister, uh, hasn't, isn't prepared yet to cut Pell loose. Uh, I mean, they are a government who are very scared of making right-wing talkback people angry. Um, you saw that they relented on the Milo Yiannopoulos thing. They decided that he was you know, didn't pass the character test. And then yes, they... yes, we have to see that guy again. So he'll be out there. Um, this is a guy who, oh, well, on the Pell stuff, he was uh, arguing that, ped- what was it, the, the, old, the audio they found of him basically defending pedophilia? Yes, back in his bright butt days, he um, said that relationships between men and boys weren't necessarily a bad thing. But which he meant, younger, yeah, um, and he's he's he still hasn't paid the fifty thousand dollars from police bill from last time he was here, and yeah. Anyway, the, the government there was a bunch of reasons that the department had said we shouldn't give this guy a visa to come here because uh, he's going to cause problems, uh, and the yeah the bolts and so forth chucked a wobbly about it, and so they've they've decided the minister stepped in to give him give him the visa. He, he didn't seem to take much persuading though, did he? I mean, don't you think they wanted to do this in the first place? No, I don't think they did. I, I actually, I think that the, I think that some members of the Liberal Party did, and other members of the Liberal Party would. This is just a distraction, and they don't like. I mean, Milo is obnoxious. Like even conservatives don't really like him. They just like that he's sort of. It's it, he, he appeals to their most fundamental principle, that of doing whatever it takes to piss off people on the left. Like I really think that a lot of conservative policy can go down to pretty much them thinking, what would make that that lefty that I hate the saddest and the angriest cool let's do that well that explains daisy cousins so yes i think you're right oh, we have to do with daisy cousins because we're going to talk about the climate uh protest in a moment but uh why are we talking about daisy cousins because of that does that is that a, is that a legitimate reason to talk about daisy bloody cousins i've just said the name daisy cousins way more times than it than she deserves ever saying 
Anyway, it's a mystery, but she's doing broadcasts, so I suppose we probably have to deal with her. But before we do that, let's do with some Scamo stuff. Um, so first of all, Scamo's desperate attempt to be liked. So you know how he's got his... He wants people to call him ScoMo, which, by the way, we, why I'm calling him Scamo or Scamo, depending on the context. Yeah, I got that. But it depends on whether he's done something crooked and deceitful, which is Scamo, or whether he's done something evil and malicious, then he's Scamo. Yeah, that makes, it works. But anyway, it's also because I don't think he should get a free pass to get ScoMo established as some kind of a cool nickname. Well, is it a cool nickname, though? I see. I don't think it well, is. Well, look, in his mind it is. He thinks it is. And, like, I, if, if I didn't have one hand feeding a baby with a bottle and the other hand holding a microphone because for some reason the mic stand's broken and disappeared, uh, I would be doing the, the two thumbs up and the, the, the hat and, and, you know, you'd be impressed at how cool I was. Um, but this is this is Scummo this week trying to, trying to come up with uh, cool nicknames for the others in his band. In the same way that Ming... And Blackjack worked so well together over all of those years. I can tell you that ScoMo and Big Mac over here <laughs> are doing exactly the same thing today. I like that he laughed at his own joke. It, it helps. Uh, I think most jokes work better when you laugh at them yourself first. Look, I mean, I was, look, I feel that laughter was appropriate, though. I was, I was laughing when I first heard the Big Mac thing. It was more derisive. I, don't think, I wasn't laughing with him. I'll put it that way. No, I was just crying, so I missed all that. I'm sorry. But as Michael McCormack, after all of that, after after Scummo went to all the effort of giving him a cool nickname, has Michael McCormack at least adopted it? Has he gone around being like, yeah, yeah. Um, when, when he's on, like, oh, what the FM radio shows that these Muppets are constantly going on, but, like, when he's on, you know, Fizzy and Whipper, or is that a thing? I don't know. The Big Mouse and the, I don't know, tall person. <laughs> I listen to lots of... <laughs> Anyway, does he, are they like, we've got Big Mac with us. And he's, or do they say, we've got Michael McCormack with us. And he's like, oh, you can call me Big Mac. Have, have we had any, has he followed, has he adopted after Scummo went to such effort to try, he was willing to look like a dickhead doing it. Is Michael McCormack at least, you know, gratefully adopting it as part of the team? The team, they're a team. They're married together, the Liberals and the Nationals. Yeah, if he had adopted it, would anyone know? Because I didn't even know. The Prime Minister had said that to you play that audio just now. But even though I listen to the FM radio religiously every morning, I have never seen Michael McCormack go near it, and I don't think he will. By the way, the um, the best FM radio show is one in Detroit called Finster on the Omelette. But... Finster on the Omelette? And the Omelette. Finster. There's two guys. One One's Omelette and the other one's Finster. Do you okay? I, I wish to break this down a little bit. I mean, I know this is an Australian politics podcast, and technically, why uh, Detroit DJs have those names is really with outside the remit of this podcast. Nonetheless, why? Let's leave Finster to one side because presumably his name is you know Michael Finn or something like that. But the omelet? I honestly don't know. But oh, it's a it's a breakfast show, Jeremy. Do the maths. And unless it's like a Jim Henson Muppet of a an omelette that like talks with like a flapping mouth and has like googly eyes on it that's appalling uh like what human being is going around like yeah yeah it's the omelette here oh that that guy that's the human being who's doing it and he's getting paid for it and while we're on um michael mccormack he's also been having a bit of a fight with barnaby joyce so barnaby uh is trying desperately to come back to the leadership of the nats 
Uh, although I don't, I noticed that uh, well, most of the Nats members at the moment on their websites have removed like the Nationals logo and things. It's just even Michael McCormack, the leader of the Nationals, on his website now. Like it does technically in the small print say leader of the Nationals, but it's the only place on our website you can see the word the Nationals. So great brand you've got there, guys. Anyway, Barnaby wants back. So this is this is what Barnaby. This is Barnaby's remarks about how he's entitled to the job. I'm the elected Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, McCormack couldn't quite believe his ears. I'd be very surprised if he made that comment, quite frankly. So the Liberals sort of get involved at that point and Scummo makes some remarks and Barnaby's saying, no, uh, you know, the Liberals and the Nationals are not married together, which prompts this comeback from McCormack. And I despise Cormack and everything he stands for and have ever since, you know, I became first aware of him as a person living in Wagga in his electorate. But I will pay that this is a brutal but probably well-deserved comeback to Barnaby Joyce. I understand what it takes to have a successful marriage and to make sure that we work together. Uh, boom. <laughs> that, that marriage, that's a cruel, cruel remark, except to the extent that Barnaby Joyce genuinely thinks that his bullshit uh, can be forgiven and he can come back at this point and everyone will just, like, pretend they forget all that nasty shit that he did. Yeah, sometimes you've just got to cheer for no one, don't you? And McCormick versus Joyce. Whoever wins, we lose. Neither one of them is the predator. That's exactly right. Uh, well, actually, no, that's all right. Now I think about it, actually, one of them is the predator and one of them is probably the alien. I can, actually, do you know what? I could probably see the, the, which one is which in that particular case. Did you, you, you were pointing out to me what I'd missed. So I, I was just looking at the Barnaby Joyce, uh, the, the I was elected prime minister, deputy prime minister thing. I mean, like, A, we don't even elect the prime minister. You vote for a local member. B, if you did, then like, you only get one vote. How are you voting for both prime minister and you got to choose the deputy prime minister? Like, did we elect the prime minister or are you saying that, that vote was actually for Barnaby Joyce and that people were voting for the coalition for Barnaby Joyce's deputy prime minister? Because that's an extra level of stupid. Uh, and then you pointed out, of course, in the, in the case of Barnaby Joyce... He was not the deputy prime minister the last time he was elected because it was a by-election after the Section 44 issue. And also, when he was the Deputy Prime Minister and we elected him, he wasn't eligible. <laughs> so these are all very good points. Barnaby. Barnaby, mate. Mate. Just, mate. <laughs> no. Stop. <laughs> that has never, ever worked with Barnaby. And one more thing I'm going to play um, with Scummo uh, is I just, I just want everybody to have in your head all the stuff we've recently discovered about uh, things like Paladin and the um, and that what was that f- and the money they sent to that Great Barrier Reef fund of what was the four hundred million dollars they sent f- with no scrutiny on that and, they, and no process at least closed tenders where the the organisation didn't even ask for the money the money they sent to this crooked outfit in uh, to deal with the refugees of four hundred twenty three million that the one that registered to a beach shack in Kang- on Kangaroo Island that one. Just think of all of the things that this government has recently just chucked money shonkly at, at their mates. And then listen to Scott Morrison this week saying this. Unlike Labor, we are not the party of shallow deals transacted by vested interests to favour some in order to punish others. That's not how we roll. That's not what we do. That's not what we're about. See, it's unfair in a podcast to play me something when there are no words that can be used to respond to it. And your listeners can't see me sort of pulling my tie up so hard that it's like I'm choking just oh. at having to listen to that audio. But well, would it help if I played a laugh track at the end of it? Because it, it, it was my, I mean, my response to it is like. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> 
Uh, you, you need a track which is like a laugh track, except it's 100 people in the audience all simultaneously smacking their face with their palm really, really hard, hoping that maybe they will pass out from doing it and forget that that audio ever happened. What about some wacky sound effects, like from one of Scummo's favourite FM sh- uh, shows? So it'd be like, We are not the party of shallow deals transacted by vested interest to favour some in order to punish others. I'm picturing one of the fight scenes from the old Batman TV show at this point. <laughs> Kapow! Oh, that's just gold. Uh, Zing! You know, they do, I mean, they do say that, that you've really got to you know, try to neutralise your weaknesses. So, you know, coming out there and blatantly... It's like if Trump came out and said, look, I, I have believed above all that the most important thing for a politician to have is integrity. For a politician to always tell the truth and be able to be relied on at their word. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it was a good try, but... I I just don't what think it's far? going to fly. No, I'm I, sorry. Think, I think you have to get there just before something really indefensible comes up. It's like, or, or twisted in a different ways. It reminds me of back in 2000 uh, when Howard was being uh, referred to by his own side as being mean and tricky. And uh, basically he was seen as shifty and untrustworthy. And that was a real problem for him. And then he flipped it and he took the word trust and he started using it to be, who do you trust on the economy? Thereby neutralizing the the word trust as a, you can't trust anything he says and turning it into what was for mystifying reasons and electoral positive because people mystifyingly think that you can trust the liberals on the economy, which is clearly absurd. But anyway, um, but yeah, I, I think if Scummy wants to try that, he needs to, well, he needs to be smarter and he's not, so... Yeah, my question is, does that ever really work? Or did it only work in 2004 because Howard was running against Mark Latham? And let's be honest, you could have probably run with any campaign slogan and won that election if you were John Howard. Well, that's depressing. All right, well, let's talk about something that's not depressing. Uh, the impending doom of our civilization at the hands of climate change and the fact that the kids are out there today at least trying to make that point Yes, and given by how angry it's making all the conservatives, I'd say they're making it reasonably well. Because oh, no, no. everyone's angry before they've even gone out there. According to the Australian, uh, not only should they be in school, but they're actually being uh, led by adults who are corrupting them. But in a bad way. Not like when we get the churches to do it and send out school chaplains and, and so forth. Not like when, when parents indoctrinate their kids. This is when bad parents indoctrinate their kids. Leftists. Yes, it's fun when the Australian's suddenly against children being taught things in schools. Yeah, but the, I mean, science. I mean, that's that's not... Reading, writing, arithmetic. Where does science fit into that? It's not like you can, you know, do tests for science. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's confusing this new world. It's no wonder they they find it a struggle. One of the things that's got me about the outrage about the uh, the kids doing the protest during on a school day, they're having a strike. Uh, like, you know, because strikes are only supposed to in it, as Bill Shorten says, in an ideal world, they'd be ta- they wouldn't need to do them. Yes, and we but need in, to be clear. He didn't say ideally. He yeah. said in an ideal world. Yeah. Because a, that's different. In an ideal world, they'd do it on the weekend or after school hours. Like, what's the point of that? It's complete, like, Bill, Bill, why? Why? Bill, Bill, mate, what are they protesting in an ideal world? Yes. Well, they, I mean, in an ideal world, they don't have to protest at all. Yes. Are, are things too ideal? Is that the problem? And secondly, what? What? how is it better for them to, what, protest at night? Like, protest... When when you can just ignore them because you're at home for the weekend and don't have to pay attention, like isn't the whole point of protest to actually disrupt and make an impact? 
sucks. Like, it's disruptive and annoying going to protests. Protests, like, I don't see any reason why protesters should have to do it in a way that, in a way that is convenient for the people who they're protesting against. That's not the point of protest. No, it, it's like we forget every protest before in the entire history of the world that worked. They're all of a sudden really opposed to children leaving school for any other reason. So I imagine in the, what, the 50s, 60s, 70s, when they were kids, uh, I mean, they were, they were, I'm sure, outraged that they were taken out of school to go to, like, when, when the royals visited or something like that. That's appalling. Yes, you'll remember how no one went out to see the Olympic torch relay in 2000. No. I mean, every, as, as all the Conservatives were standing, saying, those children should be in school. They should not be out there for the Olympics, for the Royals. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that none of the people objecting to this protest have ever taken their kids out of school so they can fly off on a holiday or something. Never. They would never do that because every day of school is precious. And if it's not illness, those children should be there 100% of the time and it's never up to the parents to take them out for any other reason. Yes, I'd also like to see the uh, overlap between the people who complain that kids these days are keyboard warriors and just sit at oh, home and pretend yeah. to protest. They do seem to be the same people who get very, very mad when the kids get out from behind the keyboard and take to the streets and actually protest. Uh, it's it's almost like they don't want protests at all. Yes, it is almost like that. Um, I do, but I, and I also love the argument that, yeah, no, I mean, if they were genuine about it, they'd be doing it on the weekend so they couldn't play Xbox or whatever. But no, they're just doing it to wag school. Like, if you were going to wag school, there are much more pleasant ways of doing it than going to a bloody protest, which is not that much fun. Like, yeah. a protest isn't a... You're marching. Kids don't tend to like marching. What part of marching do these conservatives think is like the kids are going, well, I mean, as long as I get to do some marching. I, I feel like it's a deleted scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he, he does go marching, but he's more like standing on the float and dancing while the people around him march. Yes, he seemed okay with that. Yeah. But he maybe maybe, maybe that's what they think. Maybe that's what they imagine is going on today. Oh, yeah, no, I, I assume that before the protest, what all of the kids are doing is that they're stealing their friend's dad's car uh, and just running amok with it. At which point they'd be called hypocrites for damaging the environment. So, <sighs> really, we can't win. And, yeah, I don't think you can, like, wind the indomitor back on modern cars the same way. No, you can't. Even though it is, it is their friend's dad's fault that he didn't lock the garage. As you can see, Tim, obviously we've recently had a, a new small human and a slightly less recently had two other small humans. Uh, and I have to say, the more that we hear about what's about to happen to our climate uh, and our civilization, if we don't... Sorry, even even if we do what we need to do, it's already too late to not have drastic change. But just, you know, if we don't do enough to at least stave off civilization ending type change. You're, you're a father of children. I mean, they're a little older than mine, but I mean, do you, do you feel some guilt at bringing them into the world that we're apparently just going to be like, oh, well, we're off now. Good luck. Well, I feel better now. I know it's going to happen in my lifetime as well. So, yeah. Less at least, guilt. At least we, we can share the raft in that, the world. That's a good point. Yeah. No, it would have been worse if it was just after we were all going to pop off. But now, now that we know that we're going to have to suffer from it as well, at least we're not being totally selfish. Yes, and I feel way better about not having adequate superannuation saved up. Oh, I mean, I feel, I feel good about not owning a house. I mean, sure. The, 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 look, aren't land values going to spike when there's less of it? Well, that's true, but at least my assets are underwater won't just be an expression anymore. <laughs> All right, let's deal with the horror of Australia versus humanity. There's one big thing to talk about this week, which is the horrifying news of what's happening in the Northern Territory and possibly elsewhere because it turns out to be uh, very hard to police, which is the fact that our hotel industry uh, 
segregating against Indigenous people. So uh, background briefing, in fact, it may well be that there's not a huge amount that we can add and that the best advice that we can give is for people to actually just listen to the most recent episode of background briefing where you will hear from the people involved. Like they were specifically setting out um, the, what they had is they had a whistleblower from uh, one of the hotel chains, which is linked with one of the biggest, or the biggest hotel chains in um, Australia, uh, that they were ordering staff to separate out the Indigenous people who came in into certain crappy rooms at the end, uh, which had you know the, the, the hospital-grade linen and they were barely cleaned out and, and basically the sh- basically what you would put somebody that you, you consider as a, a lesser human in and then put non-Indigenous guests in the other rooms. Um, and then the background briefing people learned that they actually have some Indigenous people go to check out whether that whistleblower's release of that memo is in fact accurate, and that's exactly what happens. And um, they are clearly being... It's very hard to catch because the body that oversees that sort of discrimination um, that, um, in the Northern Territory can't do anything about it unless there's a specific complaint, and most of the people affected don't know about it. Um, they don't know it's because it's opaque. Like they, it's not like they say to you, "Oh, I'll put you in the shitty indigenous room." They just put you in the room, and you don't realize that you've been discriminated against. Tim, I'm relaying, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing what's happened in the background briefing episode, um, and uh, I've, I've, there's not probably a huge amount of frustration. to add, But I mean, does it surprise you that that's still going on in 2019? No, not at all, because um, we have spent the last 30 years as a country trying to get people to be less racist and have we though have we we've we've tried and we've we've done it in a way where it's now less acceptable to be blatantly racist and now people get very upset if you say they're being racist oh my goodness the worst thing you can say to somebody that that thing that they just said was racist it's far worse to call someone a racist than to actually you know say racist things because it's impolite to call it out but we haven't ever had the um, idea really catch on that uh, people won't actually just be a bit racist. Uh, we've just got them to do it in more covert ways. So to hear it's going on, um, sadly, or while it's appalling and shocking and kind of painful, um, it is absolutely what Australia does. We'd almost say that you could tell that this sort of thing would happen based on the way that we were willing to let the intervention happen. And we were, uh, the white community let things happen to Indigenous people and rules be imposed on Indigenous people and um, restrictions and um, horrific things said about Indigenous people that they would never accept about themselves. They would never be willing to live under themselves. And the only basis on which you could think that another group of people is... is um, deserving that treatment. So the only way you can think it's okay for that other person, group of people to have that treatment imposed on them would be if you think that they deserve it. Um, and the only way you would think they deserve it is if you think they are less a human being. So if you think they're less a human beings, it makes perfect sense. And obviously that's what people must think or enough people must think or, or it would have been a bigger outrage. Um, so if that's the mindset, then yeah, it makes perfect sense that people are running hotel chains would be like, well, these are lesser people. We don't want them in the nice rooms. Yeah, I think the the key thing is that we haven't had a single Indigenous person come out and say they're surprised by any of this. Um, no. Because the, they know what's going on. Uh, it may surprise, you know, some of us white, white middle-class people who... Are oblivious to don't our see privilege. it every day. But um, 
you, you will not find me an Indigenous person in the country who says we are a bit discriminated against, we're surprised. Uh, they will say we're rightfully very angry. We would like to change things. And, uh, yes. Here is the evidence. Stop, Look at this evidence. Stop talking about it to each other and get out and do something. Absolutely. But no, they're not surprised. It is depressing. I, look, I will. I recommend that everybody have a listen to that, and I, and I might actually um, leave that issue there. Other than I'm still appalled that it's getting less coverage this week than anything else. Like it's been buried. Like this this um, background briefing is a week old, and have you seen it covered by any of the rest of the media? No, I don't think I have. How is that not? How is this revelation that we are still doing shit that you would expect from the you know segregated American South in the fifties? How is the revelation that that's still happening not huge news? I can't answer that, except to suggest that probably most news editors might be comfortable white middle class people. Mm, racisms. Uh, of course, we are two white middle class people talking about it. So what I might do is uh, try and have some Indigenous guests on the podcast and we can discuss it a bit more thoroughly. But I think that the big take home, apart from, like, it's it's important to listen to it because um, if this happened to any of us, I would, I, if it happened to me, I would want people to be hearing about it and be angry about it. So since the best way to be angry about it is to hear the specifics of it and hear the evidence of it, and like, like they record it happening, like you can, you can hear what happens. Um, I feel that it's worth listening to. And, and if, you know, look, it's one of those things where it'd be easier for your blood pressure not to listen to it. But on the other hand, easier for, better for the country if we do. So I endorse listening to that episode. So the other thing I want to talk about was a follow-up to last week. So we had an uh, excerpt of Ben Fordham, a 2GB host, uh, bashing Julian Burnside and interviewing uh, Peter Dutton in a way that I felt was largely incompetent due to the fact that uh, his whole... The main thing that Burnside had said that he was objecting to was the idea that people might be drowning when we drag them back to sea on these boats that the you know the conservative line on is that they're unseaworthy and we're putting people at risk of drowning and then we drag them back to sea because that reduces the risk of drowning somehow. Anyway, I was suggesting that perhaps Fordham could have, rather than just going, oh, but more people died beforehand, maybe he could have asked Dutton for some evidence that people weren't drowning now. Anyway, uh, so I tweeted, I tweeted a response to him which said, uh, pity you were too incompetent to actually ask him questions about the people dying now as a result of boats being dragged back to sea. The whole interview was an utter embarrassment for you. So I just tweeted that at, you know, in response to the 2GB tweet on the subject. And then, look, I was surprised. Uh, so suddenly at 9.42 at night, last night, Thursday night, I suddenly got this back from Ben Fordham. And what I'm going to do, Tim, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do a radio radio play. And by radio play, I mean you read one, one part of the conversation, I read the other. It's not a very good radio play. It's not going to win any awards. Um, it's not really theatre of the mind. But uh, So this is Fordham arguing with me. Now, admittedly, at the time, I was slightly distracted. There's some gaps in mine as I go and deal with a, um, a slightly gassy newborn. And so there's some gaps. There's some gaps from my end um, because that kind of took priority. And, and ultimately, that's how the conversation ended because I had to go and deal with that. And when I got back, Ben had presumably looked at the whole thing and gone, why am I arguing with a random person I've never heard of on the internet? Such a good question. Okay, so I'll be Ben. You can be Ben Fordham. So I don't know if you can do a voice. For I'll, I'll do my best Ben Fordham voice for you. You know what he sounds like? No idea. Okay, just imagine. I'm just going to I'm just gonna guess it's probably this. Okay, at, at the end of this, we'll play a, a very... In fact, you know what? Right now, I'm going to play a bit of Ben Fordham for you, the listener, that I'm not playing for Tim. 
And what about where he says, oh, we don't know how many people have died as a result of boat turnbacks, but he conveniently ignores the number that we do know, 1,200 people who were breathing one moment and alive and the next moment they're dead. They never made it. Well, that's it, Ben. And, it's- and you can tell how accurate Tim's impression of Ben Fordham is based on his guess of what Ben Fordham would sound like. Jeremy. Please provide me any evidence or reports or even allegations that there's been deaths at sea as a result of boats being turned back. No, no, it's back. 2GB. He's far more awkward than that. Like, you're going sort of more the Andrew Bolt type thing. No, I think, think 2B, Mo- 2GB. Hour of power, that kind of... I'll wait. In the meantime, I will focus on the 1,200 deaths that are not denied by either side of politics. What do you say about them? Don't care? But that's the point, Ben. The government refuses to reveal what happens to those refugees, or even if they keep any records at all. Your entire comparison line is based on the idea that people aren't dying now. And what's your evidence for that? You say the boats are dangerous and unseaworthy, so how can it be safe to drag them back to sea? The government says no one is getting through, although they admit that they are still intercepting them. So what, 100% of them are seaworthy and safe now? Anyway, you had Dutton there. You didn't even ask him what records the government keeps on the safety of the people they drag back to sea, let alone press him on it. What a waste of an opportunity to do actual journalism. And then I sent him a link to the conversations fact check um, on did 1,200 refugees die at sea under labour. And um, cut it short, their, their figure at the end is they say it's probably about 1,100. Um, so it's not 1,200, that's, a, that's an exaggeration beyond that. But um, even the 1,100 is kind of, it's based on the idea that here are the actual figures that we do have and we'll assume that it's a bit more. They don't actually have 1,100 records because they don't know exactly who were on which boats and they're not sure. So, like, this figure is not a, there are 1,100 people that we can literally say we found the bodies of and we know what they are. Like, this is a guess, a guesstimate, and it's not from the department because the department doesn't put this number out either. Like, when you ask them about it, they refer it to this body at Monash that was, like, somebody who was trying to put them together and trying to guess. So, like, the department is doesn't doesn't even bother keeping its own records. That's how much they care about the people drowning that they use to justify their entire policy. Anyway, then I added, also, stop exaggerating the drownings number. Note, the above doesn't contrast before or after or what happens to the refugees we do successfully bully into staying in danger instead of risking the trip. Oh god, I kept going. Alright. I don't support either big party's policy on the subject. If we had a non-racist visa policy and treated someone coming from Afghanistan like someone coming from Canada, then refugees could fly here safely and apply for asylum at the airport. Vastly, vastly cheaper, and no one would drown. Also, people wouldn't be destroyed in offshore hell camps designed to deter other refugees from escaping persecution because we're actually threatening to treat them worse. Okay, this is now Ben... Uh, but this is Ben taking an excerpt out of the, the um, conversation fact check. Verdict. The figure of 1,200 deaths of asylum seekers at sea under labour regularly cited by politicians and the media is broadly correct. The best available data appears to put those estimates at closer to 1,100. Dot, dot, dot. So not 1,200 then. And note how wonky the source is. So, are you suggesting Australian Defence Force members have been involved in the cover-up of deaths at sea? Two question marks. The verdict is 1,100 deaths is about spot on. Sorry, I might have been off by 100. Several exclamation marks. Yeah, I love, I love that too. Like he's, he's like, you know, There's three what, about these, what about these lives? You know, why is nobody thinking about these lives? I might have been off by 100. Like, what is 100 lives? Who cares? Great. Anyway, so I said, I suspect the government very carefully makes sure it doesn't follow up what happens to the boats it drags back. But Ben, you're in a position to find out. You could use your journalist's scepticism to push the minister and find out if he has any basis for claiming no one is drowning after being dragged back. And then in response to his 1,100 deaths thing, I said, yeah, I suspect the next time you cite the magic death figure, you'll say 1,200 again and not 1,100 though. Wonder why? No, Jeremy. When I know that you're comfortable with 1,100 people drowning, I'll make sure I say 1,100. Exclamation mark. 
what does he mean by that's just like wait so unless i if i agree with him that i don't if i say to him i don't i'm a filthy leftist who doesn't care about 1100 people then he'll start using the correct figure and until then he'll just keep saying 1200 even though he specifically knows that it's bullshit that is the deal (laughs) um what anyway i replied common sense suggests an unseaworthy boat dragged back can't be all that safe for the people on it and what happens to the boats that are unseaworthy even dutton isn't claiming they're not still intercepting boats and then in relation to his 1100 thing i said no, I am very uncomfortable with any deaths of refugees. I reject the contention that we save lives by bullying them into staying in danger overseas. You've got zero evidence of deaths at sea as a result of boat turnbacks. If there had been a significant incident, the Australian government would be expected to report it. If not, it would be seen as a cover-up and would lead to sackings. You're making shit up, mate. <laughs> if we cared about saving their lives, we'd let them fly here safely. Fly them here? We're not travel agents. They choose to get on boats. How dopey can you get? I'll just remind him that I just emphasize you. I said we'd let them fly here safely. I didn't say we'd fly them here safely. They're two different things. I didn't say the same one that he's responding to. Anyway, uh, I replied, the Australian government doesn't give a shit what happens to refugee boats sinking elsewhere in the region once they're out of Australian waters. Uh, in relation to the fly them here thing, I said, uh, Ben, we let people from most countries have a visa to visit Australia. We deny those visas to people from countries like Afghanistan. How is that not racist? Mate. You keep worrying about imaginary boats, and I'll focus on the real human beings. Hundreds of them who are dead as a result of policies that encourage them here. Oh, he cares about the hundred of them now. <laughs> it does matter. Hundreds. Yeah, no, but like, the, you know, a hundred. Like the, the hundred that he didn't care with was plus or minus. You know, a hundred, whatever. All right, so I came back. Uh, why would someone who could get a visa to come by air, like a Canadian can, come by boat? They wouldn't. They're only getting on boats because we give them no other option. What makes you think they were safe before they got on the boats, or that they're safe when we blew them into staying in danger overseas? Keep in mind, almost everyone in our offshore camps has been assessed as a genuine refugee. Ask Dutton what steps he takes to make sure that the people we drag back get back safely. Do they follow up? Bet you they don't. Under your rationale, every human on Earth has a right to fly here and stay here, regardless of what we know about them, and you want us to book the flights. Can I have some of what you're taking? How are we bullying people into staying overseas? This is fantasy land stuff. Ben, someone from Canada can get a visa in moments. Someone from Afghanistan simply cannot get one at all. Why is that? Uh, and in relation to the how are we bullying people into staying overseas, uh, isn't the whole point of offshore processing to deter refugees from fleeing persecution and coming here? How do you think offshore detention stops boats, in quotes, other than by being a threat to other refugees that will treat them worse than what they're fleeing from? Because we don't have hundreds of thousands of Canadians who would move here tomorrow if given the chance. We deal with countries differently based on circumstances. Is this stuff that complex to understand? When we tried to be super compassionate, more than a thousand people ended up in the water, struggling to stay afloat, died a slow death, and ended up on the ocean floor. Dead. R.I.P. You got it? If that's compassionate to you, you need your head checked. If you genuinely think the refugees we drag back to sea get back safely, why not actually ask some questions of Dutton to confirm that? I mean, don't just take him saying, sure they do, at face value, but ask him what he's basing that on, and how someone independent can check... But wouldn't that be actual journalism? Since when do nations have a duty to fly everyone else in the world to their country? What's wrong with protecting your borders? Do you have any gates or doors or locks at your joint? Oh, I love that one. That's... <laughs> so, you want me to quiz politicians about non-incidents that have no factual basis as opposed to focusing on reality? Okay. Should I ask the Prime Minister about UFOs too? Okay, and then there's a big gap there because I had um, baby-related things, but I basically, and he didn't reply to the next lot. But um, So what I, what I sent back to him was, wait, you're seriously suggesting that boats being dragged back to sea, boats you say are dangerous, 
being unsafe is a weird conspiracy theory like UFOs. Why should you believe that they're safe when the government was concealing that they were intercepting boats until they were forced in Senate estimates to admit that they were still intercepting boats? Oh, in relation to the fly everyone here. Again, where did I say we should fly everyone here? I'm saying we should not be discriminating against people based on their country of origin. Also, it's another fantasy that if we didn't discriminate, every refugee in the world would come here. That didn't happen before mandatory detention. Most refugees in the world don't want to cross the planet and come to Australia. The only refugees who do are the extremely motivated ones, who make excellent citizens. And then in response to the Butt Rudd one, we didn't... I got all these at once, so... (laughs) We didn't try to be super compassionate under Rudd. They were still refusing to let the refugees come safely by air, so of course they came by boat. But again, your reaction to the idea of letting refugees from Afghanistan fly here safely and process them at the airport confirms that this has nothing to do with saving lives for you. Your real concern, like the government's and like the people the government is pandering to, is the refugees who arrive here safely. And so we spend, what, $16 billion treating them like shit to save a couple of million that we fear they might get on Centrelink. And then I I ended because I just wanted him to at least think about it. Given that Dutton refuses to let the media know what's going on with his on-water matters, why exactly are you so quick to believe his department makes sure the refugees they turn back actually return home safely? Do you really think that's what they do? So... Um, the point of doing all of that, uh, well, A, because I've yet to find a, a boat turnback defender who will come on the podcast, so that's the closest that we've got. And sure, Ben Ben isn't here to defend himself other than that conversation, but I suspect that, that also you know, uh, is a reasonable reflection of how he does his uh, interviews based on his commentary on Julian Burnside, in which he didn't invite Julian Burnside to, to respond. So I don't feel too bad about it. Well, I feel like we've um, given him a fair hearing by reading out every single word that he said. <laughs> I feel I feel like it's just one of the I would genuinely would be curious to have a discussion with somebody who supports it because it's such a it, it's baffling to me that that somebody because I don't think you can get more than two minutes into it before you have to say something racist like yeah but people from Afghanistan like they'd, they'd swarm the country if you let them have visas like Canadians the whole policy is deliberately racist like it has to be because otherwise we would treat people the same and they'd just be able to get here safely and there wouldn't be any people getting on boats in the first place. So I don't know how to get through when that, other than by highlighting it to somebody who's taking that position, can't you see how this is, this isn't about, give a shit, like this is a, you might be telling yourself that you care about people drowning at sea, but that's not the basis, is it? Because you really object to them getting here safely. Can't you see how your policy is, like your position is profoundly racist. It's xenophobic. You just don't want refugees arriving here safely. That's what you're, that's the bottom line. Yeah, well, it is. But how do you get people to change it? Um, I've tried Bible verses because, you know, Christians are meant to respond to those. And there's an awful lot of them about, you know, welcoming strangers among you and, you know, remembering that, you know, your people used to be refugees in a different country and now, you know, you need to treat people who come here well. Um, But I'm reliably informed that uh, that's uh, out of context. Is that what they say? I'm, I'm genuinely curious. I, I, I've, I've genuinely been told that um, to to try and apply, you know, those verses from two thousand or three thousand years ago to Australia is just taking them out of context. Because actually, I, I don't know why. Maybe Israel didn't have borders, or I, I, I think that is fascinating line from Christians, from religious people. To be standing up and saying, "Hey, those verses from thousands of years ago, you can't apply them in a modern context." Now, if you'll excuse me, everybody should sit down and listen while we tell you that you should apply these verses in a modern context. Yeah, not, not those ones, though, the other ones. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, yeah, no, because I'm genuinely curious, like, how you, when you've had these conversations, because have you had conversations in your church environment with people who are of a conservative bent because of the social war, the culture war stuff, um, and you've pointed out, because it seems to me like this is such a threshold issue. Either you are okay with us basically treating refugees appallingly 
um, mistreating them in camps to try and bully one another ones to stay away, dragging people back out to sea. If you're okay with that, then you don't believe in their humanity. You don't believe that they are equal human beings to you. Like, I don't understand how you can have that view and have it pointed out to you. Like, have, if, have it drilled down that really that's what you're saying. And if you're a moral person not going, oh, yeah, hang on, I've got that ass about. Yeah, well, that, that's why we have the myth of economic refugees, which aren't really a thing. Um, yeah, there's plenty of people who will just rationalise anything to avoid having to face up to uncomfortable truths. So if everyone getting on the boats are, in fact, um, rich people who are not in any danger, who are coming to Australia to take advantage of the job opportunities here. Why would they do that if they're rich? Nobody knows. But If they're rich in their, <laughs> if they're rich before, that doesn't even make any sense. Secondly, are these people saying so that they genuinely believe that there are no... No genuine refugees. Not a oh, genuine no, no. refugee. There's a few genuine refugees sort of on the boats because that's part of the people smugglers scam. Oh, I is see. You've got to have a few genuine ones, otherwise it's a bit obvious. And, and Jesus stands for us persecuting the genuine ones to try and get some bad ones. Like, Well, you know, it's just a necessary thing because we've got to smash the people smugglers. And this, this is why... <laughs> this, you can't this... smash people smugglers without breaking a few genuine refugees. Fair summary, but this this is why I'm so genuinely angry at the ALP on this issue, because for well, ever since the Tampa, so going back to 2001, we had a day or two of the ALP tried to talk sense. They said, look, boats come all the time. This is just one more boat. This is a lot of hysteria over nothing. That didn't fly, so they gave up and said, we are shoulder to shoulder with this government. Uh, and ever since then, every policy has been based on the premise that people smuggling is evil. We're really tough on people smugglers. The whole system of coming by boats is bad. Um, but we won't know, let them we, have visas to come by air. We, we, we need to protect our borders. We won't mention people coming by air because that mucks up the narrative. And even in government, you know, even with Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, um, we were still talking about the Malaysian solution, which was, you know, not a solution. Well, let's 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 gra- let's grab on that for a minute because um, I, it was a John Manager who was a public servant and is a supporter of obviously uh, he's a, an opponent of the offshore processing, but has got in some, his head somehow that we that the reason why it's happened is because of the Libs and the Greens opposing the Malaysia plan. So I had this whole argument with somebody this morning, an ALP supporter, um, and that on the basis that they're saying that um, there's a spike. So in 2011, the the number of boats. Once the Malaysia solution is voted down by Parliament, um, the boats spike and then they sort of come down after Rudd says nobody's going to be settled here. Then they start going up a little bit and then the coalition comes in, they drop completely. But they don't actually go to zero because they never actually stop them coming. But um, the line they've got is, see, the boats... So this is the people who are opposed to the coalition but like the ALP's version of boats. Like, there's a very fine line to be drawing. Like, I oppose what the coalition does, but the ALP stuff is fine. Anyway, their argument is... Um, that, that's, that, that rejecting Malaysia is what caused the spike. And then you say to them, well, hang on, what? By the way, just anybody who's not 100% certain remembers what the Malaysia plan was. Basically, it was, it was we were going to send all of our refugees off to Malaysia and then we were going to take, like, I think 800 people from Malaysia or something. Or the, yeah, I, it was a one-to-five swap. They, they sent us five people and we sent them one. Yeah, but we were sending refugees away to a country that was not a signatory and still is not a signatory to the Refugee Convention yes, in which they don't idea. have rights. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a shitty idea. And again, surely the whole point of it is to treat them badly to be a deterrent. Like, again, yes. it's the whole punish one group of refugees to send a message to the others, which is profoundly immoral and stupid. 
But their argument, but you're like, hang on. Okay, yeah, I, I can see that the numbers go up at that time, but that doesn't, that's correlation. That's not causation. It's not like, I mean, you're, you're asserting that the, refugee, the refugees sitting in Indonesia were like, oh, well, they didn't get to send us to Malaysia, so now we'll all suddenly go. Whereas, you know, three months earlier or a half, six months earlier, where that also wasn't happening, they didn't all come. Like, clearly something else is what's pushing, it's like it'll be a push factor. Something else is pushing, causing them to come. Not this arbitrary, it can't be that a certain policy in Parliament wasn't passed because clearly the only reason they came up with the Malaysia plan in the first place was that numbers were increasing. Otherwise, why did they come up with the plan? And you say that and they're like, oh no, yeah, there were some numbers increasing, but they didn't spike. And you're like, so why were they increasing beforehand? Because those are the factors that led to the spike, not this. Yep. But the the fundamental mistake for the ALP was uh, saying, well, instead of just standing up and saying, look, uh, we're a big country. We have many resources. We're compassionate people. Uh, let people come here. You know, we processed onshore for years, and everything was great. Or we'll just let people come by air. That's a good idea. Process at the airport, vastly cheaper. You know, put open up our embassy in Afghanistan and let people go and apply there, and then they can catch a plane. You know, all these things that could have been done because the ALP wanted to look tough on borders and adopted the liberal national line of that's what we have to do. Uh, we've now had. 18 years nearly of that being the bipartisan narrative and now it's really hard to break out of and the ALP has never figured out that they're always going to lose this because yeah. there's there's no depth they can go to where the Liberal National Party won't go lower in how we treat these people you know the ALP says well okay fine we'll give you turn backs but only if it's safe oh no that's, that's not good enough you, you're putting caveats on it you're making our borders weak but they're not going to win. I think but I think the Libs they, say that they only do turnbacks where it's safe to do so. I think they still say that. But they but, attack Labor for saying it because they were putting a caveat on turnbacks and there shouldn't be one. Also, it begs the question: Hang on, if you're not if you've got nobody who's you're adding to the detention centres, that means that you're sending all of them back. So are you saying one hundred percent of the boats that come now are safe? Cool. Uh, then it doesn't sound like they're a great. You know, they're at risk of drowning when they get on the sea. Like. You don't need to. We don't need to. Turn, we don't need to chuck them in detention centres now. You can. They're coming safely, and uh, we can process them here. Oh wait, that's because yep. if drainings was actually the concern. Yes. So if if logic worked, we wouldn't be here. But um, at some point, if you're the opposition, you stand up and say, "Look, you've been doing it wrong for eighteen years. We got it wrong for six years in the middle of that. But we've we've realised that this whole system is cruel. People are committing suicide. People are getting sick." You know, and the fundamental aim of it, which is to deter refugees from seeking refuge, is wrong. We are a signatory of the convention because yes. we agree that we should be doing our part. Exactly. And they're still coming. So at some point, just grow a spine, stand up and say, actually, you know what? We're going to go back to the way it was before. People are welcome. Um, it'll make our country stronger. Yeah. That would seem to be the sensible thing to do. So good luck getting the ALP to do it. It won't happen. No. All right, that's probably a good place to wrap up. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very much enjoyed doing it with you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Where can people find you if they would like to find you? I mean, <laughs> that sounds sinister. If they could just, if they want to find your writings on the Twitters or something. Yes, they can find me on the Twitters uh, at Seriously Tim. Thank you very much to our Patreon subscribers for keeping the podcast going. Um, if you are not supporting it, that would be very much appreciated. One of the things that I'm thinking about doing, and I'll, I'll flag this to listeners now, uh, it probably won't happen in the next two weeks because there are some special guests lined up. But after that, what I'm going to try and start doing, uh, partly in an attempt to fix the balance on the podcast where I talk way too much, 
um, is we're going to start looking towards having two or three people and uh, doing it with Zencaster or something. Now, Zencaster is a service that charges money. Uh, and so if you haven't been supporting the podcast and you would like to see that happen, subscribing to our Patreon uh, uh, would, to help fund that would assist greatly in that actually happening. But I do think that will probably lead us to have some more balanced conversations and, uh, and make the podcast even, even better. Even better. Always right, thank you for coming back. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music, Alex Lund for the artwork, and we'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Goodbye. See you later.